This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome back to another episode of Care Less, Do More. This is your host, Michelle Parker. This week, I got to interview Colleen Ballet-Baz, also known as Coco. Coco and I spent some solid time together last year, and no matter the conditions, she had the most wonderful attitude. Her humble grace within the industry is so energizing to be around. She's made two women's ski films, which you must check out on YouTube. The links are in the show notes, and she's created opportunity for so many women to film. I admire her positivity and attitude. Just a huge fan of this young woman altogether. I truly enjoyed our conversation and where it went talking about her efforts to help refugees in France and her love for our sport of skiing. She does it all from big mountain to street rails and has so much style. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank our sponsors, starting out with Anon Optics. Coco also rides for Anon, and I'm so hyped to be able to call her my teammate. Anon makes the highest quality goggles with the absolute best lens changing system, so quick and easy with the Magnatech technology, the Magnatech technology, I said that weird, that also seamlessly fits with their MFI face masks. Big fan of wearing helmets, and when you stick to the same brand of helmets and goggles, the fit ensures that you won't have any gaps and your forehead will stay warm. Anon Optics are my choice of eyewear, specifically the M4S goggle. So many colorways and designs to choose from. Check out anonoptics.com for more details. Additionally, huge shout out to Arcteryx. They've been growing their incredibly talented roster of athletes as of late, and Coco is one of the newest additions to the team. Arcteryx has always been innovative, forward-thinking, and progressive when it comes to creating apparel and gear, so much so that they've on occasion re-engineered machines to make them do exactly what they want them to do. They invented the waterproof zipper, and we all know that they produce the highest quality and most waterproof outerwear out there. That's no lie. I'm a huge fan of what they're doing within the outdoor industry, and I've got to recommend a film that just came out featuring my teammate Max Chronic. He uh, made this incredible film called The Balkan Express. They rode their bikes from Greece to Germany in search of ski lines. Having done a bike trip with my skis, it, I was amazed at the time of the year that they left on their adventure and their battles with the weather. I mean, they were riding their bikes through snowstorms. The film is amazing, and it's a must-see. Colleen Ballet-Baz grew up in Vienna and later moved to Grenoble to study and ski. She competed in slopestyle for six years, and in 2017, she was no stranger to the podium, winning the Audi 9's Big Air, the World Cup in Milan Big Air, and many, many more. When she took the bib off and transitioned to filming, she took matters into her own hands and produced two incredible women's ski movies. The first was Ski Voss, and last year followed up with Recipe. In doing so, Colleen created space for women to film and invited people in, something we absolutely needed to shed light on many of the talented park riders, street riders, and big mountain skiers from Europe and beyond. Coco, as she's known, is the most kind, gentle, sweet, and incredible woman. Being around her makes you want to be the best version of yourself. She has single-handedly lifted up so many women around her, and just in general people, and I'm in constant awe of how she gives back. Welcome to the podcast, Coco. Thank you so much for this introduction. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for being such an amazing person. So I think I'd love to dive in. Tell me where this all started. Like, where were you born? 
Yeah, I was born in Vienne. It's a city south of Lyon, a big city, one of the biggest cities in France. So it's not a mountain city. I grew up playing volleyball, judo, uh, did some rollerblading in skate parks and this kind of stuff. And then I moved to Grenoble for my studies. Grenoble is a city, it's closer from the mountain, so I could get to ski more over there. And I fell in love with freestyle skiing through a little association in my university. We were able to go like skiing and in snow parks like three times the week and I really felt in love so it's why it all started. How old were you when you first went skiing? When I first went skiing I was two, three, like okay. super super small but like we went just for holidays with my parents right. like for one one week a year so it was like I was 17 when I moved to Grenoble mm -hmm. and when I was able to start skiing like more regularly. That's mm -hmm. awesome and what did you study? I studied political sciences yeah So nothing to do with skiing. It was still interesting though, like really interesting. And when I finished my studies, I was like, ah, I might work in this field later after one or two years of skiing because I had the opportunities to be a little more professional in my skiing at the, by that time. Yeah, and then I didn't go back to the political sciences stuff, still skiing now. <laughs> <laughs> Good life choices. Mm. Um, so you go to school and you started like getting really into skiing and I'm assuming this is park skiing, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't even see anything besides park things for me. Like that was what I was really into it. And I was, yeah, I was passionate right, right away. And because I guess, uh, yeah, I was, I really loved like doing rollerblading and tricks. So when I'm, was able to do more skiing, that the type of skiing that I was interested in. And yeah, first it was just with my friends, just for fun. And then I started doing some small contests. And I also that maybe was a good timing because in 2013, the first French team was created okay. for the first Olympics in 2014 in Sochi. So I got selected by surprise. I mean, I got a call one day like saying I was selected in this new French team because I had done some results on local contests and I was like, oh, okay, no wow. <laughs> and then I was like, uh, but I'm not done with my studies. Uh, how am I going to do this and stuff? But I was like, I can't miss this opportunity neither. Yeah. So yeah, it's how it all started to be like a little more serious with training during summer, more comps, the World Cup circuit and being in a team and having a coach, etc. So Yeah, What by surprise, it? pretty yeah. much. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Really incredible, actually. So you just got a random phone call, and they're like, we want you to be on the French yeah. team? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was really surprised, actually, that it worked this way, too. Yeah. I was like, oh, but they didn't ask me first, you know? Like, I was like, no, but then I was like, wow, okay, this is such a big opportunity, and... I was kind of, that was not even a dream come true because I have never dreamt of that. I was happy with just skiing with my friends and super content with it. And but then I was like so, so stoked also to be able to do this for a living and get to be able to ski every day too and prog progress your skills and be surrounded with a team. And yeah, that was incredible. Such an incredible opportunity. So yeah. cool. Did you have sponsors at that time already? 
Mm, I might have some vocal was my very first sponsor. So maybe I think I already had some skis. I was doing some little videos with one of my friends who was a, he was a photographer on video. So we, we just did like the small two, three minutes edits and that's how I get my first sponsor. So yeah, I think I had some vocal skis already. Yes, that's lovely. Mm. And who were the people that you looked up to at that point when you were in college and studying mm. and skiing? Yeah, that's, I was looking up to, I was already looking, looking up to some women for sure, more on the freestyle scene. So that was Kaya Toski, Kerry Herman by the time, uh, yeah, Ashley, Barasby, all the, the stars. And I was looking at, it was hard to find video content of women by the time. So I was looking a lot of X Games videos, like their runs and stuff. And also a lot from the men for sure. Like, Candid Tovex, Tom Wallish, Henrik, Arlo, a lot of these guys. I was, yeah, I've, I, I always love watching videos on YouTube. So I was Googling ski freestyle and <laughs> basically watch what I, what I found. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever competed in the X Games? No, I got invited once, but stayed as a alternate and no, got invited twice, was injured one time and was alternate one time. <sighs> yeah. Mm. Hated when those oh, experiences yeah. no, escape you. I was the alternate great. at one of oh, them yeah? as well. Okay. Yeah, still no a great wanted. experience though. Totally, the vibe and everything. It's something I was really stoked to just be there and like cheer for my friend. And uh, yeah. that was quite incredible. It's something special. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Yeah, yep. I I competed in the first X Games ever for women, and it was the half pipe contest, and okay. that was like not my specialty at all. Mm. And then they added women in slope style, and I like missed the invite because I got injured the year mm. before, so I was the okay. first alternate. And then I retired from competing right after that. But that was always one that was elusive. Mm. Escaped me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, amazing. So you're like looking up to all these people, watching YouTube videos, just absorbing as much as possible. And then you get invited to be on the French Canadian team or the French, not mm. <laughs> the French, We're French in team. Canada right now. Yeah. The real French team. Mm. Um, and then what happened with the Olympics? Uh, the Olympic, so yeah, got his selection in May 2013 for the February 2014 Olympic. So I was definitely not in a professional mood by that time. It was really, yeah, as we said, like skiing with friends, partying and stuff. So I missed this Olympics because I broke my collarbone, but I think it would have been something so surreal for me to go there by this time. I was like... I had barely done any competitions more than this contest, local contest. So, so I was pissed to miss them for sure, but it was like, that would have been quite surreal. In the 2018, I injured my knee in December, just before. So mm. this one, I was dis disappointed because I had yeah. prepared myself for it, but it's part of the, it's part of the game. And I think we, we can't really do a few years of freestyle skiing without getting injured. So totally. it was just about timing, but yeah, in the end I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and when did you decide to switch from skiing in the park and competing to filming? Yeah, so after this injury, so I spent the 2018 season rehabbing and I wanted to start competing after just not to finish on a bad note, pretty much. So I did a few more comps in the 18-19 season, but I remember in this during this season I was already like, my mind was already a bit somewhere else than in the comps. I remember I was like in the Utah World Champs in February 2019 
And I was the only thing I was thinking about was like the backcountry session I would have with Jeremy Pancras and Jacob Wester back when I went back home. I had this plan in Chamonix, so that was the only thing I I couldn't think of, and I wasn't even thinking about my runs or or this kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, maybe you are you are at the most important event of the season, and you're not thinking about like what you're doing there. So I was like, okay, this is I should I should do something and like do what I really want to do, and that was like getting more into the backcountry get to know more the mountains and in my mind like skiing had so much more to offer than just skiing in the park and progress your tricks which is awesome I I was so passionate about doing that and I still love it I do it a little less but I was like I really want to explore more and so I wasn't even focused anymore on my competitive skiing so I was like oh what's the point I should just switch yeah Mm. what was the allure to you the what? Sorry. The allure. Like, what was attractive about filming and mm. being in the backcountry? I've just... Being in the backcountry is what, like... For me, the mountains have always been, like, a source of... Uh, how do you say? Like, wandering? Or, like, being, like... It's always find it so beautiful. And the years went by and I was like, oh... I like being in the parks, but you know, it's just a small park, a small part of the mountain. And I really wanted to just explore more and get to know new stuff also. I I mean, as all of us, but I love learning. And by this time, learning new trick was not enough anymore for me. I wanted to learn about like, yeah, how to free ride, how to have more skills than just skiing in the park. And for the comp part, I I have never been such a competitor in my mind. So I I always preferred filming, even for like small projects. That's really what I was the most passionate about. And that's also where I skied the better usually. And so I knew like competition for me was a little bit a way to get into the filming scene. I was like, okay, I kind of have to compete. It's where I will learn a lot of tricks and get to know the scene. And it's kind of a mandatory part of a career. But I I knew it was a way for me to get into the video. So it was just like, when? When would it happen? Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And then did you start filming before you created Ski Voss? A little bit, but for a smaller project. I did like a small street project in 2017. I couldn't compete this season because I had some, how do you say in English? Yeah, I got, you know, there's an anti-doping system. Yeah. And I messed three meetings with this stuff. So I got, I couldn't compete for one year because of that. I got into a little doping court of whatever and no they said way. you can't compete for one year because <laughs> you missed the appointment yeah i wasn't wow. feeling this super super well and <laughs> I, yeah i didn't like i mean that's that's a system where you need to tell every day a range of one hour and where you are and they can come where, like whenever they want all year and if you feel this wrong then they can show up i don't know where you said you you would be if you're not there you got a you got a red ticket no and way. after the third red ticket you <laughs> you're like suspended for suspended from competition and so yeah whatever so then i could film this little street project in 2017 and otherwise we did some 
park edits with my friends Taylor, uh, Lundquist, Emma Dahlstrom back in the days, Kim Lamar. We were like just king, having like a two, two, three weeks trip. We did that in Mammoth. We did that in Perisha in Australia. And just we were filming each other and editing some stuff. Pretty simple, but that's really like, that's what I was loving the most by then already. Tugging on my heartstrings, bringing up Kim Lamar. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's a dopest. <laughs> yeah, I think last year... I had the pleasure of going to France and filming with you and I was thinking about it and I was like, whoa, like there was a wave of slope style competitive skiers and then by the time I retired, I think is kind of when you came into the scene basically. Mm -hmm. Like when I stopped competing, I don't even remember what year that was, but then you guys were the next wave of like super progressive women coming into the park and like really pushing a sport. It was incredible to watch, but I was like, whoa, I've never even met Coco. Like mm. our worlds are so far apart, but that was like such a big drive to go to France and like hang with you. I was like, this is epic. This is like such an opportunity to embed myself in like a slightly younger generation and get to know them. And I think like, I don't know for me. Yeah. Well, first of all, you don't really strike me as a super competitive person. <laughs> really? Yeah. Do you feel like you're competitive? Oh, no. I'm no. Not. Yeah. Like when we're out there skiing, there's like such humbleness and such stoke for mm -hmm. what other people are doing. And you're so supportive of that. Like it's very obvious to me that like, yeah, maybe filming suits you better. Mm. Right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so you start filming and what inspired you to create Ski Boss? Mm, a lot of stuff, I think. So yes, Kivas was this first movie project. I wanted to, yeah, no, I think the first time. So I wanted to do a woman movie. That was pretty obvious in my mind, just like, yeah, maybe from the lack of representation when I was starting skiing, I really wanted to see more footage from women. And, and yeah, also just from having met a bunch of women I admire and I love skiing with during my comp years and not being able to really spend time because when you're competing, like everyone got their own team and it's hard to spend time together sometime and just ski together. And uh, like Taylor, for example, Kim, I really wanted to ski with them and do something with them because like we had some great relationship on the human side as well. And so I was like, oh, this is a great way to do it. Maybe like just bring everyone together for a movie project and work together on something like so we would create something. And yeah, just offer a platform to showcase women skiing, which is awesome. It's getting better and better every year on the street part, backcountry. Yeah, without even talking about the contest scene, it's, it's incredible right now what the girls are doing. So yeah, just wanted to showcase this in front of a video and also showcase like the vibe we can have and the sorority and like all the motivation that comes from being an all-woman group. That was important for me as well. Yeah, I think one of my favorite aspects of that movie was the street segment. Okay. And I feel like there's so few women that are like hitting street rails. Mm -hmm. You guys kind of like resurrected it and like brought it back, I felt like. But I don't know if I'm right with that. But that was like, I was like, dang, yes, they're in the streets. Like, mm -hmm. so cool to watch. No, there's not a lot, definitely. Again, I think uh, Kaya Tursky and Kim were maybe the, the one who had the most standing out street segments in level one production. And I remember one segment from Kaya that was so dope. Kim as well is like a badass in the streets. And, but yeah, it's not, yeah, 
That's true. Like it's not snowboarding, women in snowboarding yeah. do street do street skiing, uh, not skiing, snowboarding. Yeah. But yeah, there's not a lot in skiing, so that was important to do that. I think that the, uh, the new generation is doing it a little more. The mm-hmm. few girls that step into the street, which is awesome, and yeah, really encourage them to go. Yeah, big time. I did it a little bit back in the day, and I loved it so much. But I never had a segment with it. Okay. But I loved, loved seeing it on film, and y'all are so stylish. Like, is it uh, Yenny Lee? Yenny Lee is like yeah. She's oh. a rail machine, a style machine, and she, like, so she was filming with us for recipe, and she got her shot, like, banger shot after a few tries, and then she was just trying some harder one, and it was so impressive to see. She's doing things with such ease, and, yeah, got so much talent in her skiing, and, like, yeah, you, you can tell. She gets really some love watching really her. banger shots. Yeah. yeah. And so for you, though, you do, like, street, you do park, you do backcountry, and big mountain. Like, you kind of cover all bases. And when I started, that was, like, you could do that. Like, you could film and compete and do all the things. But, like, as the sports progressed, for me anyways, like, I kind of stopped doing it all. But I love the fact that you tap into all those elements of skiing. Can you compare, like, a street trip to, like, a big mountain trip? No, yeah, that's so different. That's so different. And it takes different skills, too, for sure. Like, uh... I mean, I guess it's still, I'm still in my transition, let's say, like from the park skills to me, like lead to more street uh, street filming and park filming, maybe some backcountry as well. And, but it's, yeah, it's so different. It takes maybe, yeah, it takes different gear in the street. You need to find your spot, build it, have the right, I don't know, yeah, right gear and like, yeah, it's it's really different. It's you need some rail skills more than like actual skiing skills. How it's the case like for free ride and stuff. But yeah, last season I I didn't really want to ski some street and then I was like, but we need to organize a street session just to showcase Yenili and Taylor skills because that's really where they excel and they're so good in the street. So I was like, okay, we're just gonna create a little space for them to to showcase their skills. And so I went, we went to the U.S. in Taylor's house in Utah to, to film street. And then I just got stuck in the hype. <laughs> you and got sucked <laughs> in. Yeah. I was skiing again with them. But first I was like, oh, maybe I'm too old for this. And <laughs> but then the crew hype, yeah, got you motivated. And that yeah. was a great session. And that street mm-hmm. segment is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was it taking on a production like that and creating that movie, Ski Bus? Mm. Yeah, it, for Skivas, it was everything was new for me. So it was like I got a lot of help from Raf Regazzoni, our producer. So really, definitely couldn't have done it without him. Like it takes a lot of steps to do a movie, like from having just the idea, writing them down on the paper, like what you what you want to do, what would be the scenario if there's one, who you want to film with, where. Uh, the dates, like all this logistic stuff, then you need a budget, you need a little money for to yeah to pay the filmer and everything. So that was rough, rough duties. Oh and nice. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, after that, yeah, you need to um, find a production crew, something, some someone you wanna you can film with and who's gonna do the editing or the production. You need to organize the schedule with the girls. You need to find out who's motivated, who's got other obligation. You need to find out the places and everything, like all, the, all what is related to just classic, 
trip organization, but there's many trips in the season. So that's quite some work behind, like besides skiing, but I love it and make you be in contact with great people too. And yeah, so yeah, I loved it. But, and after that, you have all the editing process festivals and everything so that's the creative part as well like yeah being part of the editing i always admire athletes that do more than just ski and do yeah their sport like they're involved in the industry in different ways and what i see what you've done is like you've really created a space for all these women to show up and and, and ski on the big screen do you feel like like I'm, I admire that so much. I think of it like Jess Kamara has done that in snowboarding. She's like made movie after movie that just showcases women and allows women to have that opportunity. Cause I think for a lot of them, like that just wouldn't happen, mm. which is fascinating to me. Yeah, I got super inspired by Jess's, uh, yeah, movies in Invited. Yeah, so great to see like an all woman group and they're so good too. It's insane to see to see her there snowboarding. So yeah, definitely got inspired by. Yeah. Just for that. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the responsibilities of wearing that hat and creating that? No, I wouldn't say that because it was a pleasure to do it. I mean, this season, maybe I'm glad to not having all this on my plate. But yeah. like, no, 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 I was just so happy and driven by like putting out a like, nice movie with all these badass girls that I really like, love and admire. So that was more pleasure, pleasure than anything else. And that's how I like to work too. It's like, I, yeah, so no, no, that, that was quite okay. I was just happy to not have like all these text messages and, <laughs> and mails to do at the end of the season. But other than that, it was like, yeah. A good project. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And then, did you take a year off and then do recipe? Yeah, pretty much. So I took a year off because there was COVID too. So I, I, uh, I first wanted to do another project and then COVID came in and it was hard to find budget and everything was quite uncertain. But it allowed me to film for all the projects, like I filmed with Legs of Steel, mm -hmm. uh, European production companies are based in Innsbruck. And for a movie with my former sponsor picture, like we went in the mountains for 10 days, like winter camping, that was a really great experience as well. So in the end I was like, oh, maybe that's good to do your own project one year out of two. And the other year you just like follow all the opportunities and maybe discover other stuff that what you would have done just by yourself. And so in the end, I really liked ha having a, a down year as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, little interruption. Hi, we're good. Thank you. All good. Thank you. Do you need No. I wanted to keep it quick. Is it okay? <laughs> yeah, it's totally yeah, okay. all good. Um, yeah, we're in a hotel room right now at the Arcteryx Academy because Coco is one of the newest Arcteryx athletes. How do you feel after this week? You kind of just came in and got to meet the whole team. Was it amazing or what? Oh yeah, that's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'm really, really stoked to be part of this new, brand new family because like apparently they're really good at bringing people together, like to ski together, party a little bit. <laughs> and yeah, no, that's, I'm really, really stoked and I can't wait for like the future with this team and more projects and yeah, more great encounters. Me too. Yeah. When you joined, I was so happy. <laughs> I was Thanks. like, that is a good decision. No, I'm really happy too. Yeah, good. That's amazing. Um, so for filming for recipe, like when, when I went out there, we didn't have the best conditions. Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite 
shitty. Yeah, but we basically just went on this epic French road trip mm. and went to like all kind of tiny ski resorts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I was so glad you came, first of all. And yeah, you came in February, which is holidays time in France. So all the big resorts are super busy and the snow wasn't so great at that time. So yeah, we figured out it would be better to go to the small resort where like nothing is tracked pretty much. And I kind of like more and more going to small resorts. Like the usually the terrain is still great and you have less people, just more time, a bit more quiet to film. And so, yeah, we ended up in these small areas and yeah, snow wasn't the best. Yeah, I wish you could have seen the Alps with more snow. And yeah, we did this little refuge trip as well with some sand storm coming in. <laughs> yeah, is that the Saharan sands? Yeah, that yeah. was a sand storm. Yeah, cool. that was wild. Oh yeah, we couldn't ski down the hill. <laughs> yeah, that whole trip was kind of a Hail Mary. Like we wanted to do a hut trip and then we're like, yeah, okay, let's go. And, and then the snow was surprisingly good the mm -hmm. first day. And then we went to bed thinking like, yeah, it's going to be amazing tomorrow. And then we woke up and it was just like, yeah, the sand and the wind had ripped through the mountains and the mountains were like literally brown. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah remember <laughs> when we were trying to go down this slope and we had to push on our poles. Yeah. This yeah. Is there was, was no speed at all. And yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking like, I looked outside the window and I was like, well, I think the skiing's over. And you were like, we have to go. <laughs> So we hiked up like a couple hundred feet. We're like, yeah, skiing's over. <laughs> it got and then really we bad. just played guitar. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, we wrote a guitar. song. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. That was Such still a super special fun. trip. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and on that trip, I met um, another one of your friends, and you kind of told me about highlining. Mm. Chloe. Yeah. Yeah. Chloe is a, like really badass mountain girl from France and she's a super dope skier. She's also doing a lot of highlining and she kind of brought me into highlining two, two summers ago. Yeah, I kind of felt in love as well. Like it's such a beautiful sport and yeah, really yeah. interesting on the mental side, on the sport side as well, like overcoming your fears and everything. So Describe that sport to people. Yeah, so... If you know slacklining, it's like trying to walk on a little rope with a tension. And so slacklining can be super easy. You can have small ones to, to start with. And the longer it gets, the harder, pretty much. And highlining, it's when, when you put out this, um, this, yeah, it's not a rope, but that's, yeah. Kind of a big slackline, right? Yeah, a big slackline in between like in the air basically so in between like huge pillars of rocks in yeah. the alps and it's <laughs> the most beautiful thing in the world it's quite it's really beautiful yeah pretty much you can you can we say rig it when you settle a highlight yeah you can rig it where, wherever you want basically it can be a tree it can be a rock i mean it has to be quite strong yeah <laughs> because yeah like all the safety is based on how you rig your highline. everything is backed up so if anything cracks something something else with like uh, do the twiddle be the backup so yeah and then you step on it with a leash of course like oh some people do it free solo but yeah whatever this is <laughs> yeah, completely other thing. yeah yeah and so it's quite safe and then you just try to walk on the line it's actually it's scary and impressive but it's one of the safest spots i know in the mountains because like you you just have you fall in the air and like if everything is well done in the installation then it's it's really safe you just have to double check your friend too when this yeah. person goes on the line that make sure she has done her knots well and everything is fine but yeah it's 
really beautiful spot in my it opinion. is absolutely mm. beautiful like some of those photos are just mm. stunning and the vibe is good too it's yeah. like one of these spots where like it's not competitive at all and it's just at least in france it's a small community like when you go into this community like everyone knows each other pretty much and everyone is super welcoming and super chill and i like this kind of vibe too pretty makes me think about the vibe when i used to start freestyle skiing too like just just good time with friends and get to progress with everyone and everyone's giving advice to each other and it's really nice i love it that's awesome yeah i think of like climbing for me mm-hmm. as a sport that helps me progress in skiing because i'm facing my fears And like when I'm lead climbing and you have to climb above your gear, it makes me have so much more confidence in myself. Do you feel that way with highlining too? I would imagine it has a similar, like you have to trust yourself to walk out there and like you're Mm -hmm. high off the ground. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the mental part is really, really interesting. And also I don't climb a lot, so I don't know if it's the same, but it might be the same, but highlining requires such a, you need to be in the present moment. You need to be ultra focused because the moves are like, you need to be super precise with your moves. Otherwise you're just going to fall. Or like, if you want to stay on your line, you need to be like really focused. Think about like, I don't know your, your hip, how your hip are placed, how your, your foot, uh, your feet are walking and all these little details. And I think that could, yeah, that's, that probably help for skiing for sure because like when you you want to jump or you're in front of a cliff or whatever you want to be precise with your skiing as well and your like your moves and yeah it helps for sure being focused and yeah with the concentration yeah mm. definitely i kind of love the sports that force you into the present moment mm. like yeah, you can't really too. do them or participate unless you're totally present skiing does that yeah. to me oh yeah me too like definitely. anytime yeah, yeah. i'm skiing i'm not thinking mm. about anything else same yeah definitely. i feel really lucky to Which have is that such a great part of it too yeah mm. So in the summer times you're highlining, and then you were working towards becoming a mountain guide as well, or like yeah, like um, not a high mountain guide, more like a trekking guide, pretty much. So yeah, still working on it. Yes, <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't done much, but yeah, that's something I would love to do, and just being able to. So that's a diploma in friend that you can go with people in the mountains as long as it's not glacier terrain. And you can do everything but using ropes and, yeah, glacier uh, stuff. And so, yeah, it's just bringing people to the mountain, show them around, guiding them, and also talk talk about, like, wilderness, animals, everything, like, uh, get to give them some information. So, yeah, I would really love to, to dive more into this. Yeah, and part of that diploma is, like, orienteering right like using maps definitely and then additionally knowing about your surroundings right definitely yeah yeah knowing about all the mountain range yeah like the um, the test to get into the formation is like a orientation course where you can only use a compass a map and your um, altitude watch i don't know how to yeah just the altitude measurement and so it's really interesting to to go to like to get to learn all these techniques too in the mountain. Pretty useful, for yeah. sure. Get to know more about like how to read a map precisely, and so yeah, I really love learning all this stuff right now. So cool. Mm. I loved your combination too. Like when I stayed with you last year, you lived in this beautiful kind of a 
barn house almost. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, uh, hundreds of years old, right? Yeah, something. It was a, an, an old farm that got renovated yeah. by the owners. Right. And the owner left for two years in a other country, and we were able to to rent the house with a few friends. So yeah, that was a good, cool one. And you're just on the outskirts of Grenoble, up in this beautiful grassy hill with these massive mountains behind you. Like how long it takes you twenty minutes to get to Grenoble, if that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of have the best of both worlds. Do you like kinda. being pretty close to the city? as well as the mountains yeah I think I still like it I've been living in a more mountain area close to Chamonix for two years I was loving it but I was also missing the um, stepping a little bit out of the ski world from time to time like getting to see concerts events cultural stuff whatever that had nothing to do with skiing and sometimes it's hard to find this when you're living like in the mountain and so I find Grenoble for me is just a great balance in between all this stuff. You have a bunch happening because it's a student city. So that there's a lot of yeah, cultural events, concerts, parties, whatever. I have a bunch of friends there because it's where I used to study. Mm-hmm. And also the mountains are super close. The city is surrounded by three different small mountain ranges. So you can yeah, you can basically go in the mountain within thirty minutes of driving. So yeah, this is a really good balance. Yeah. And talking about your interest in culture and being close to the city, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work with the refugees? Yeah, so um, I would. Yeah, it's like there's a lot of uh, association in France that try to to welcome the refugees like uh, as as good as they can. And I've been working with two of them the past years. Uh, one of them is called. Riders for Refugees, and basically every autumn we collect some clothes from the ski and snowboard industry, uh, brands, part, uh, like individuals, and and a lot of people mobilize themselves to give their clothes. So it's pretty pretty nice to watch. And when then we sort everything out, and we give them to association that are like on the terrain and distribute the clothes to to yeah either refugees or people in need and. And the other one is an association, it's on the Italian and French border, where there's a lot of migration happening. And the goal of this association is to welcome the, the people just that has just crossed the border and are like homeless. Uh, and just to welcome them in a, for a few days in a refuge, provide some clothes, some food, some information about the legal rights as well, because like... Yeah, usually people just come in, in the country and they don't know nothing about their rights. So it's really important for them to know like where they can seek asylum, where who they can ask for some, I don't know, uh, medical help or whatever. So this association provides this and they are always in need of volunteers because it's a lot of work and it's like they got a... 160 person um, capa- c- capability capacity yeah. in this refuge so that's a lot 160 so it, yeah, million uh, uh, no or, oh. 100 of <laughs> Uh, what did I say? A hundred and sixty persons. Oh, 160 yeah. people. Yeah, but it's a lot of food every day. So they need people to do the food, to the whatever, the washing. And so, yeah, I've been working with them from time to time when I've got the, the chance. It's really interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. Where are these refugees primarily coming from? 
recently it was a lot from Maghreb, Morocco, Algeria, uh, Iran and Afghanistan as well. Yeah, a lot of people from Ag Afghanistan, definitely like since the Taliban came into power, uh, I guess, yeah, it's like increased uh, migration from them. And yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's the two main zone where they're coming from. And the um, crazy thing is like, so Maghreb is not far from France and Italy, but like the Mediterranean Sea is so uh, dangerous for them that they have to go to Turkey by foot or like by whatever mean they, they find. So go all over the Mediterranean Sea and then walk across Europe, like Greece, the Balkans, Serbia, Croatia, uh, Austria, whatever, to make it to France. And so that's an insane uh, uh, journey for them and like super tiring and yeah. yeah. So when they come to a country, it's like usually they're pretty happy to have a little place to rest. And, For mm. sure. Yeah. And are they all seeking to come to France ultimately as their final destination? It depends. Some of them want to go still in England. Mm -hmm. Sometimes at the final destination. Sometimes it's Spain. But yeah, a lot of them are happy to stay in France. And it usually depends where their, their relative or family are. Some, a bunch of them already have family somewhere or cousins or friends that they want to join in Paris because, uh, yeah, I guess for everyone it's important to have a community. So if you're like, if you have some people you know in Paris or in London, that's where you want to go, even if, yeah, you, because they could stay, the city this association is in is Briançon. They could stay in Briançon, but you want to have some people that you know, you want to mm -hmm. have a community. So a lot of them are going to Paris even if it's not an easy situation for them in Paris, a lot of people are going to be homeless and stuff because like all the help, the accommodation facilities are crowded, but they still want to go there because they know people. Right. Mm. Are you comfortable talking about the actual like boots on the ground at the entry point? Yeah, yeah, actually. So yeah, this is getting quite political, but uh, the French police is not really respecting the, the law. They are like forcing people into going back to Italy. So the, the law, the French law is saying that everyone could enter France, see ask for asylum. If the asylum request is refused, then they have to leave. If it's accepted, then they can stay. But everyone can come in and ask for asylum and stay a few months waiting for their request to be accepted or not. And so when people try to cross from Italy to France, the police just catch them and send them back to Italy. So this is illegal. So another association then they have created some. So yeah, basically, so these people try to cross the border by night because it's easier for them to hide from the police. And this association has created. So we basically go by night in the mountains and try to find these people and help them go to France before the police find them, pretty much. So it's quite a, a game that shouldn't exist, pretty much. But yeah, so the goal is to bring them safely in Briançon because it's uh, like a 20 kilometers walk, mm -hmm. which is quite a lot when there is families, babies, people that sometimes are injured, especially during winter. It's a super, it's a mountain pass, so it's super cold. It's usually snowy. So it's like, uh, it's often, it's always snowy. And so, yeah, 
you don't want these people to lose feet because they're, they're frozen or whatever. Or there have been some people dying too from running from the police, like mm -hmm. just falling from a cliff or whatever. So yeah, that's uh, another thing that happened over there. Right, so mm -hmm. like middle of the night, you get to know these woods quite well. Yeah, you need yeah. So you need to go into this wood first, like get to know the terrain because yeah, if you get lost with the people, that's not the yeah. goal for sure. And then you're just waiting on the strategic points. And if you meet people crossing the border, you're like, oh hello, we are friends. And uh, do you want help? Because some of them don't want help. Some mm. of them are really comfortable in the mountain, especially people from Iran and Afghanistan. They know where to go. They know how to walk in mountains. They're like almost more efficient by themselves. And sometimes they have some difficulties to trust you as well because they've seen like so many right. people like not being on their side on their journey. So sometimes it helps being a woman for this. But like some of the men volunteers, sometimes mm. they, they have to talk for 10 minutes to say like, no, I'm not, for the poli I'm not from the police. I'm not from the police. You right. can trust me and it's super hard to trust because yeah and if these people if the um, refugees want our help then we just like try to bring them in one of our car and drive them to to Briançon or make sure they, they don't get lost in the mountains right mm. yeah that's pretty incredible like boots on the ground like grassroots level like helping people what mm -hmm. inspires you to do that how did you get involved Mm, I got involved with one of my friends. So first, so this association was one of the um, associations we were distributing clothes with Rider for Refugees. So that's how I get to know the refuge in Briançon. It's like we were giving them some clothes from the other association. And yeah, with one of... So yeah, the studies I was doing, it was... Uh, political sense, but it was in uh, uh, my master degree was about humanitarian aid. So that's always a field that has interested me. And I think I would have worked in this field where if it wasn't like if I wasn't king. And so a lot of my friends are still doing this kind of stuff. So I have quite a big community in Grenoble of people like being involved in social aid or like humanitarian aid. So this is something I was doing with one friend. First, we went there one week and then we were seeing our other friends like, oh, this is something they need volunteers. Do you want to come? And then we were organizing ourselves go, like when we had like three or four days, three days, and we were just going there. And they are always uh, in need of new volunteers because it's quite tiring. Mm -hmm. Like the people in the city in Briançon, they can't do it every night, of course. It's super tiring. And sometimes you go back at 6 a.m. And so it's always good to have like fresh energy so yeah, yeah. Sure. When, when I have like three days in front of me I'm like oh why not and then I ask some of my friends in Grenoble and usually we we are like a group of two or three going and yeah what kind of feelings do you have when you're like in the woods mm. assisting people yeah it's it's a lot of different feelings the first time it felt really surreal I was like ah but what the fuck? You know, it feels like a game that shouldn't exist with the police because mm. it's it shouldn't just exist. The people should just be able to cross the border and ask for asylum. And, and you also need to be quite focused because the goal is to bring them safe. And if you get lost, if you make too much noise, you can't use any light because you're going to be just watched over by the police and they are doing like walks in the mountain as well. So, so yeah, you need to be quite focused to make sure you don't get lost in the dark and stuff. 
and there's a lot of organization going on. Usually we go with a, a dozen of people. There are several groups, so there's some communication involved. So you're pretty focused. Sometimes it's a little scary with the police, to be honest. Yeah. And yeah, then if you find some refugees, you're like even more focused because if you get caught, that's not a big deal. The police, they will ask for your ID. As long as you're in France, as a French people, if you're in Italy, you can be accused of like passing people over mm. the border. Mm -hmm. If you're in France, you can't be really charged for anything. So I, it happened a few times, like they just find you, they ask for your ID, you're like, yeah, okay, this is fine. And But if you're with refugees, then you really, really don't want to get called by the police. So then it's all about being super discreet and hide if you need to hide and go low on the ground. It's quite surreal, to be honest. And yeah, yeah but yeah. Taking a quick break from this conversation with Coco to shout out Palisades Tahoe, my personal favorite ski resort in the world. It's actually my happy place. I grew up riding this mountain and it truly has my heart. The train is world-class and you can see so many lines from the chairlift making the entertainment value high and it's a great way to scope where you wanna go on your way down. Palisades just opened up a new lift called the Base to Base Gondola, which connects the Alpine Base and Palisades Base by a 16 minute ride, making it the largest icon resort in North America. It's actually kind of like a Zen mobile with the best view. It's kind of relaxing and it's a great way to access more terrain. I'm super hyped on it. I've been loving skiing here with my mom and dad lately. My mom literally knows every name to every run. And if you don't want to ski the gnar like my mom, there are plenty of moderate to chill runs of which have such a great pitch for carving and following my dad. Lastly, I want to thank Peak Skis for supporting the show. Today, I'm highlighting the technology that sets Peak Skis apart. It's called Keyhole Technology. Bodhi discovered Keyhole by accident during his World Cup days. Because of it, he won the World Cup GS title. Keyhole is a simple inflection point in the flex of the ski. It delivers a supple and playful at-turn entry, but confidence-inspiring grip underfoot through the turn. We achieve this by laser-cutting an oval, in the Titanol in the forebody of the ski, which is basically right in front of your binding. Keyhole eases torsion in the shovel for a loose feel, but boosts torsion underfoot for edge hold. It's a noticeable difference and I am a huge fan. It also helps the skis to float and pow, which I'm discovering with my 104 SC underfoot, that's actually a bit of a narrower ski for the amount of snow that we've received in Tahoe this year. And these things are floating and I wouldn't trade them for any other ski right now. I love these ones, the 104 SC. I can't even imagine. I think we started talking about that last year when I had gone to Ferry Creek. Yeah, and um, that was like one of the bigger movements that I've been like feet on the ground. And I know when I was there, I felt really vulnerable mm. and didn't entirely know like my purpose. I knew my purpose because we made a film about it was to spread the word about logging old growth trees. Um, but at the time when I was there, I was like, wow, these people have been so much more dedicated to this cause than I have for the last year. Like some people had given up a year of their life to be there and sleep in the tree and protect the forest. Mm -hmm. And I almost had this like imposter syndrome. And, um, and yeah, similarly, we were like hiding in the woods mm -hmm. and there was special forces and RCMP flying helicopters every single day and you would like basically come out of the woods in the daytime and you'd get a radio call and you'd jet up the tree and lock yourself to this tree in a portal ledge. And it was like this really intense, there was a lot of intensity behind it. Mm. And 
I mean, trees are a lot different than people. No, no, but still, that's, I remember we had this conversation and we were like, oh, there's so much, so many similar stuff. Yeah. yeah. And same, like, you shouldn't be doing that. It's fighting for the common good, like trees, nature, it's for the common good. Like sh even like police or whatever, they should be happy that someone is protecting these trees because, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the RCMP but ended up spending enormous amounts of money to fly the helicopter every single day. Mm. And they, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers. I think a recent article just came out, but they spent millions and millions of dollars to try to, like, at Ferry Creek, essentially. Whereas I think Teal Jones, the logging company, made $7 million off of the trees. And the RCMP spent well over twice that to protect the trees. And I'm like, damn, like, in a perfect world, the RCMP could have just paid Teal Jones and we could still have our forest. Definitely. Yeah, yeah this old ridiculous. growth. Yeah, and we, to be clear, we're not anti-logging. We're anti-logging old growth. Mm. And old growth is such a crucial part of a healthy forest and ecosystem. They're the knowledge holders of the entire forest. The trees themselves actually pass on that knowledge through the fungal network mm. to the smaller trees and all the other species. It's not just like a cedar tree passes on information to a cedar tree. Like it's all connected. And when you cut the old growth down, like we're going to have climate migration of trees soon. Like trees are actually going to start moving. And when the new trees come into that forest, they won't have that knowledge keeper there anymore. So it's really disrupting the ecosystem. Mm. And um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but... <laughs> no, yeah, just coming back at your imposter syndrome. Yeah. It's easy to have this when you see other people like working so much more than, yeah. than you. But I think also like in this kind of uh, fights, like it's so helpful to for the people that are there one year it's so helpful usually to see that they have support and i know for like from talking with like people in briançon that work fully all year too they're like oh but it's so important to know that you have support from outside yeah. and that you're not allowed uh, alone and it gives you more energy to keep on going because it's quite a hard task yes staying in a tree for one year i guess probably after a few months you're like yeah wow, wow what am i doing is it even useful or like you, you start questioning and totally. stuff and then when we get like out Outside support, I guess it's when the motivation can like, I mean, continue can, on. Yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. When we showed up, um, we went to this place called Ridge Camp, which was the highest camp. And it was like, basically, there was a mapped out area that they were going to log and um, with some beautiful, incredible trees. I mean, magnificent. Like you stand at the bottom and you can just feel their energy. I can't even imagine cutting one down. Like it would, it breaks my heart to it's think so that yeah. I know Ridge Camp itself, where we were camping, is still intact, and essentially, like a lot of the original tree sitters that had been there for a year left during the time that we were there, and we had the skill set to climb the trees and occupy those tree sits. So it felt like we were holding a position that was of value. Um, so Ridge Camp is still there, but they've logged the greater Fairy Creek area. Um, yeah, which I think it's important to note. It's on Patchy Dot and Diddy Dot land as well. Um, and it's, I mean, my heart breaks thinking about it. Like, mm. and it's still a movement. However, we have not won. And I guess my ultimate goal is to raise awareness of this. Do you find yourself like drawn to this type of work because it gives you purpose and you need to give back to society and like make society better. I think we've spoke about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uh, would be hard maybe to f find out the deep motivation, but yeah, I think it just, 
the feeling of not being like just working for yourself and not being super selfish, especially considering like I feel myself really lucky to be able to live from my passion and like to have yeah to do for a daily basis something that I really love which is king so I'm like yeah definitely as you said if there's a mean to give back a little bit to give from our time too because yeah I think we have quite a fair amount of free time during summer so yeah it's really interesting and it's also some great experience on the human level it's always like yeah Mm -hmm. really really interesting experiences and yeah, definitely. It's important to me to not, like, during summer, not just being focused on, on skiing and on my own career and kind of give back as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of our friends in France, David, um, he has housed a bunch of refugees as well for, yeah. for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. he's the he's, he's, um, founder, kind of, this Riders for Refugees Association. Oh, he's the founder. Not the founder, but, yeah, the founder of the French part of the association uh-huh. and yeah so there's a, a, a big need as well of like uh, these refugees need an accommodation and so yeah there's some needs of welcoming them at home and David he welcomed some of them for yeah one year I think he had two of them and it kind of become like his own family mm-hmm. Victor as well from the Arcteryx team Victor has quite a crazy story like he helped um, a dozen of Afghan people getting out of their country when the Taliban's took over the power because these uh, Afghan people were snowboarders, which is not allowed under the Taliban regime. So these Afghan people like uh, seeked help to Victor to get them out of the country, and Victor and other few friends like Jérôme Tanon, a French uh, snowboard photographer, they helped them get out of the country and welcomed them in France, found them, found them uh, an accommodation and everything, helped them with the, all the paperwork, and they did an amazing job. And this, don't remember the number, but like 15 Afghan people were able to come either in France or Germany, and like I think they got their asylum request approved recently. So no that's such a great news. Wow! Yeah, yeah that's incredible. Um, well, I think we've had that conversation too about like that that balance of feeling like what we do is a selfish pursuit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, I remember like on my last day there when I was leaving, we had this really deep conversation mm. about it. And I don't know, I keep coming back to it, but like what you've done for women in skiing is huge. And there's not really too many people who have done that. Like it's amazing. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just put it out there because I think much. that's incredibly inspiring and, and for all women, like representation matters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. In, but uh, I mean, I've also done that because I really love doing it. For me, that the best way of spending a season is being with your friends, film together, being with people. You have the feeling either you know or you have the feeling it's gonna be like a good symbiosis in the mountains. This is so important for me. Like I couldn't imagine walking with people I don't really care about or just like. Just, uh, so yeah, this is also a good way to spend a good season for me. So, but yeah, it's also providing a platform for sure. But, mm, <laughs> both. Yeah, totally. <laughs> also a little bit of a selfish goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, when we were out there, like watching you ski, like I was so impressed. You have so much style and your tricks oh, that you're you. bringing into mm-hmm. the backcountry. I was like, 
she is going for it. Like just the other day, skiing around, you're doing threes and backflips off of everything. Mm-hmm. And you were trying double backflips when I was there. Did you land one last year? No. Nope. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't walk out. Yeah, you session. had some wild falls too. Yeah. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. But what's your relation one? You did a big 360 on this trip too. Yeah, with my blown meniscus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> Thanks. I still definitely really want to continue doing tricks in the okay. back. Um, and I feel so much better after my knees fixed, (laughs) but I couldn't help myself with all of you incredible women. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do 360. Like Sarah was talking about doing a switch dub 10 or something. Yeah. Sarah is wild. Yeah. Yeah. She had barely filmed in the backcountry ever. So Sarah Hufflin, she won Olympics. So she's a pretty decent freestyle skier. (laughs) She won. She has an Olympic gold medal. She won the 2018 gold medal in Pyeongchang and she... Sarah is quite incredible. So she's pretty old for the freestyle scene. She's over 30 and she's still winning a bunch of stuff and progressing her skiing. And she's she got like three doubles in her bag of tricks. Oh and, my gosh. And yeah, when she went filming with us last season for a recipe, she, yeah, I think it was her first session in the backcountry and she was throwing down and like, yeah, she's so good. She Yeah, and she wanted to do a double. I think a few more days and she would have done it. I have the chills yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. like the, the <laughs> progression that has happened in women's skiing from when I started to now is like mind-blowing like I would never have visualized doubles and and triples going down at yeah it's insane insane. yeah yeah it's so cool yeah mad props to all the girls on the com scene it's insane what's happening right now yeah to watch Yeah, and Sarah showed up straight from the Olympics. Yeah, something like that. She did. She yeah, came true. Like straight yeah. from China, and then we were just shredding pow. And true. I was like, "What? I'm just skiing with this Olympian? Like, this is incredible." Yeah, that was a, f- a really nice crew. You, so Taylor, cool. Sarah. Yeah, I felt so lucky, Colleen. Like, my heart mm-hmm. was so full. I was like, "This is because I don't know if our paths would have crossed without that." Yeah, maybe not. You're True. bringing people yeah. together. Well, now it would have because you're on our mm. tags. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, especially like the freestyle scene and freeride scene are quite like separated. Yeah. Which is, I mean, yeah, you can't hang with everyone for sure. But like, it's a shame. And yeah, I was really, really stoked you got to spend time with that us in your room too. I wish we had more communal events within skiing that brought mm. people together from all different walks of the sport. Definitely. Me too. Yeah. 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 More than comps. Yeah. Not just comps. Yeah. yeah totally. Shooting, some, yeah. Or like a fun competition. Mm. That's just for fun. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I just went to the Baker Bank. Have you heard of that? Oh, that the one you were doing in last Mount Baker? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's the oldest contest in snowboarding. It's 35 years old, mm. I believe. And some people have competed at every single one. And they show up every year and it's this beautiful community event. For me, I wanted to go because all my friends were there and we were filming. But also I kind of wanted like a little case study on like what that looks like. And and that event had so much soul and it was so beautiful just to connect with everybody. And I was like, man, we need something like this in skiing. Yeah, definitely. We need more of these kind of events. Yeah. 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 True. What's your take? I know you don't like to fly that much. Mm. Like... Mm -hmm. What are your rules for yourself on that? Yeah, uh, so my rules. <laughs> but I'm European as well, so we don't have definitely don't have the same habits concerning heli and cat and, and skidoo. For us, it's not allowed, so it's kind of easy. It's yeah. not allowed to fly a heli. It's just allowed in Switzerland. We're not allowed to do skidoo neither. So I'd rather go without heli and in my ski career. 
but it's easy to to do this in Europe way more than like you have no desire to go to Alaska but I'm I mean yes but uh it's, it's not on my priority list yeah and like I also love doing just ski touring and accesses, accessing mountain like with human power because like yeah I, I've never been flied like dropped on top of a line I don't know what it would feel like but like you know when you go up a line you can feel the snow you can get a good warm up you can get to see where you're gonna ski I mean sometimes unless you access from the other side but I kind of like it I kind of like having maybe one or two lines in the day but like being really focused on them but I'm sure I would love the heli drop though (laughs) (laughs) there it is (laughs) yeah but yeah I don't know if I got the chance to but yeah, that's kind of my rule. And trying not to fly a bunch, which is hard because like with an international cruise and you want to be walking with people from the States, from Canada. and yeah. But one once or two times a season is maybe my maximum. Yeah, mm-hmm. I try to stick to that. Yeah. And there's so much stuff to be done in the Alps too. I'm happy to explore what we have at home too. It's, and there is endless possibilities. So I'm like, oh, draw the... Yeah, just stick to one or two big trips a season. and Yeah, mm. yeah, one or two. That's pretty good. That's already good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah I think for me, human power is definitely my favorite way to access mm. the mountains, but it's quite hard to find filmers that are down mm. for that. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, other skiers too. Like, yeah. Because you have a different culture here as well. Yeah. In Europe, it's, it's basically yeah, what, totally. all what that everyone does this because we have no choice and pe- people like it too. Or like it's just a different culture. So yeah, I bet it's difficult here to do this kind of project. I found it to be quite difficult. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would prefer it for sure, but it's just been hard to like pull myself away from that part of our sport and that culture yeah and i i bet also on um if you want to be efficient with your ski shots it's like yeah, probably it's you get so way more shots doing heli drops and so yeah yes and no yes it, no. it kind of depends on the setup like mm-hmm. if you can just lap a small zone on ski touring you're like it works yeah it totally it works, works so much yeah it, i prefer yeah. it it's less loud it's less distracting yeah, it's like true. you're mm-hmm. really in tune with nature and um yeah it's definitely like to me, also, the way that you approach the mountains matters so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're in a helicopter or on a snowmobile, like, you're there expedited. Like, you're not really in the mountains mm-hmm. in that way of, like, feeling the snow at every elevation and every aspect when you're hiking up it. And I just love that approach. Like, it's a bit more thoughtful and slow. And, mm-hmm. and I like that better. Yeah, I think I really love it too. Besides the environmental side of things, I also just enjoy it. Yeah, totally. And on the contrary too, like I think it's almost a misnomer how people like think that snowmobiling is so, so bad. Um, Mm. And I say that only because like, Primarily, when you're snowmobiling, you're snowmobiling at home. You're not taking an airplane. You're staying in one place. Airplanes are the worst, right? Mm. And unfortunately, that's, like, just a part of modern society and a global economy where you have to fly around. Mm. But, like, the helicopter is an incredibly efficient machine. I'm not saying it's the best, but, like, to get from point A to point B, like, still flying in an airplane is way worse than that. And it's interesting because you're giving the people opportunities to see that beautiful landscape. So I think there is a trade-off there. But simultaneously, yeah, I I, I prefer walking. (laughs) Yeah, and 
your mountains here in Canada and US are so much bigger too. It's not the same scale. I mean, I guess if you're on a... It's different. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. But yeah. Like here in Whistler, you look around and almost every single mountain you can see, you can ski off of it. Mm, okay. And in France, like you definitely can't ski off of every mountain you see, right? No, I mean, some are a little too steep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah and well, France had some pretty bad wildfires this summer, right? True, yeah, it was super warm this summer. We had like a kind of a heat wave and this winter is quite dry too. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, yeah, it's not going so well, but yeah, climate change. Yeah, yeah it's what pretty are you sad to witness it. What are you up to this winter? So yeah, this winter, so f these past two weeks has been dedicated to getting to know more the Arcteryx team. We had a Arcteryx Academy in St. Anton in Austria. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then this one in Whistler, which has been amazing to just get to know the team, everyone. It's a really sick team and yeah, with really sick people too. So yeah, these past two weeks. Other than that, I think I'm, we're going to do a small project mixing, skiing and highlining. Go back to the zone we were next uh, last season to this cabin, like spend a few days there trying to ski some lines around and rig a highline on a spot above a lake, which is quite good looking and west facing. So try to capture some sunset uh, footage of this highline. So yeah, small project and I might be filming with MSP. And TGA, maybe if it. Oh, yeah, both but, of them. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> if yeah, they they, um, they would probably come over to Europe. So I'm really stoked if this happened. That would awesome. be really really nice. Yeah, to get to film with them and yeah, in France. Yeah, you deserve probably. this. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be fun and to mix it up. Yeah, that would be really. I really love nice. double dipping with MSP and TGR in the yeah. same year. This is good. This is good. <laughs> I don't know if it's something that can be done or not, but like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, just finishing the ski instructor diploma as well, the French one. Okay. I have a two weeks formation, like uh, two weeks, yeah, for just to get done with it. And yeah, so yeah, basically that's it. No way, yeah, because explain that for the listeners, because I think it's kind of fascinating, like to get your ski instructor certification is quite difficult, right? Yeah, in French, it's one of the hardest one. I was lucky enough to do it the quick way because I used to be in the French team. So mm -hmm. there you have like some facilities and I, I did half of what needs to be done for this formation. But for the, let's say, regular people that want to have it, you need to pass two really difficult tests, one slalom and one uh, giant slalom one. And it's it's quite difficult. It's like above the like national level, pretty much. So yeah, you really need to train. And then you have all this, you have some two week session of formation. I think you have like um, a dozen of it. And at the end of these two weeks, every time you have like some other exams. And if you don't succeed, you just do these two weeks again. And yeah, it's for some, the regular people, it takes them more than five years wow. in general. You can start working after a few um, a few weeks, so that's nice. But if you want to like finish it, and you need to finish it if you want to be able to bring people in the backcountry, like off-piste. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can just teach on-piste mm -hmm. to kids and stuff, which is already good. But yeah. yeah. Is that something that you'd like to do in the future? Maybe. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that would be something that... So I just start this uh, Christmas holidays working in a, my local ski resort as a ski teacher oh, no for way. one week. Yeah, yes. with kids and stuff. And I didn't really know what to expect. I was like, oh, maybe I will be a little bored doing that. <laughs> and in the end, I really loved it. Yeah, That's so cool. I really loved it. It's good to just be able to share your passion and yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that could be something I would be interested in and bringing people to the backcountry as well. Yeah, that's one of my favorite human characteristics is like the ability to share your passion with someone else. Mm. And to truly do that and be present is like such a beautiful skill set. Because when that happens to you, you feel so fulfilled and you're like, wow, this person that's just true. took the time. And like, I don't know, just thinking about it too, because we're here at the Arcteryx Academy. And part of that is taking people out into the backcountry. Like I've had two days now of like taking people for their first time ever going ski touring. And it's a thrill. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so cool to, it's like, watch progression happen and to teach and for people to walk away with this new new thing that they can do. Yeah, and there's more emotions maybe than we're so used to do that that we are not, like, amazed anymore. Or we yeah. are, but, like, in a different way. And it puts it into skiing. reality, yeah. too. Yeah. Like, mm. two days ago, I had this gal, and she was like, this is the best day ever. Ah, oh, that's so nice. And I was like, whoa, we are so so privileged and so lucky to be able to ski almost every day definitely yeah yeah it puts things back into perspective and yeah yeah, definitely yeah Mm. there was one gal from manhattan and one from chicago and it was their first time and it was so cool oh nice yeah (laughs) yeah i'm sure you were able to to share them a bunch of stuff yeah yeah and for you this week you just got to come and hang out and get to know people pretty much yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i had no clinics yeah. that I needed to, to attempt. I went to Tatum's one uh, yesterday. She, it was like radical lines and it was so, so great. Get to know Tatum and ski with her yeah. for the first time. We were with Maud Bess as well, like a skier from Arcteryx from Switzerland. And the group of people we were with were amazing. Like they were really good skier, but like so motivated and they were sending it trying some first cliffs and stuff and the vibe was so high and yeah overall that that was such a good day such a good day it looked like y'all had a Mm. ton of fun um and and just seeing like for Tatum I know I spoke with her yesterday and she was like oh my gosh Coco is so amazing at skiing her and Mode were incredible to witness and I was like yeah (laughs) they're really special (laughs) yeah um, it was fun. Do yeah. you feel like you've faced any challenges being a female skier? Like, I'm curious because I really feel like we did back in the day. I mean, I've been a pro skier since I get 20 years now. So 20 years ago, like, there were so many obstacles and walls to climb over. And it's been a noticeable change. Like, even hanging out with you guys as a younger generation last year, I was like, whoa, no one's competitive against each other. Everyone is so supportive. It's this beautiful, beautiful environment to be in. And, like, I feed off of that. And I had so much joy. Like, when I left that trip, I was like, yes, that is how we should be treating each other always. But that wasn't always the case. And so, like, when you came into the scene, did you feel like you had to overcome some things? Or what do you still see that's in existence now? Yeah. 
I don't really know. It's just like for myself, speaking really for myself, I couldn't, I know I can't work with a competitive uh, environment around no. me. So I'm sure like if I've been in this kind of environment, I was just getting out of it and like looking for some people that weren't in this vibe. That's probably what I've been doing like all the time because I just, yeah, I, it just doesn't work for me. So no. yeah, I just, so I don't know how it works for the other part, but yeah, I think like, last season that was something important for me to like to just create this space where everyone was like yeah supporting each other and yeah working towards the same goals and yeah really something important to me do you feel like there's been challenges as a female professional skier same uh, i think maybe i'm pretty good at like not seeing that or like there might have been some but like I mostly remember the support I've been having through the years from men a lot. Like I've been getting so much support from my uh, friend, men friends. Like when I was king, I think like most of the women, like I was usually the only woman in a men's group and I've been gotten so much support from the from the guys like just to like all even more support than in among each other sometimes like so I'm really thankful for that and same I think like yeah I've been yeah for sure there, there were some moments where some some especially yeah some men were like uh not talking so good about women frisking frisking and stuff but like i was like oh man this is your problem i'm not gonna even listen you know and do my stuff and yeah i didn't want to focus on all this part just want to do my thing with people that have the same mindset and this is how it's always been working for me so yeah, yeah. Mm. that warms my heart yeah that there's nothing that stands out for you because yeah. my mm. career has been littered with moments of like yeah I know yeah and mm. so it's like okay we are progressing I, I think so yeah I think so like and seeing what women do on skis now I'm like I see no reason that it might change and like go back to some yeah women not being considered because they ski so well and yeah totally the backcountry freeride freestyle whatever street skiing so yeah no, this is changing for sure in a good way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even for me, like, I recently interviewed Ingrid on this podcast, mm -hmm. and it was really incredible to kind of talk to her about the era in which we came up in. And, like, I think she said there was some interesting stats with, like, the covers that have been on Powder Magazine that have featured mm -hmm. women versus men. Um, and it made me realize and reflect on some stuff that like I haven't really even talked about that much but like coming up when I was 17 like and 18 but when I was 17 the very first photo shoot I ever did they basically were like you're in the hot tub in your bathing suit and it was for free skier and I showed up and I was so, so nervous what? and you're so impressionable at that age like mm. you don't really know you haven't found your voice yet and they were like, how old are you? And I was like, 17. They're like, okay, when this comes out, you'll be 18. Like, basically, they hired a model and had the model come to teach us how to model. And no then way. they asked us to do all these different poses. And, like, I was no skateboarding, and I showed back up at the house, and I was, like, stuffing my face with food, just psyched to be a part of it. Like, I was like, this is an honor. This is the women's issue of free skier. And then all of a sudden, like, there's this model, and she's like, you should stop eating. You're doing the bathing suit one in the hot tub. And I was shocked and I could oh, yeah. not find my voice in that moment. And I didn't know 
what the outcome would be. But I did this photo shoot. Thankfully, it was before like the internet existed, so these photos don't exist online. But I remember that coming out and like taking so much heat for for that photo shoot. And a lot of the heat I took was from other female athletes, and it was so heart wrenching and like scarred me for oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and that well, and this then is like a hot story. I mean, this is a yeah. Yeah, and then furthermore, like multiple, like I had a photo shoot with outside magazine they asked me to pose naked and I was like no like I'm not comfortable with this at all yeah but it was interesting like navigating that as a younger female athlete and and I mean when you're 17 you don't know you know you want to just seek any opportunity and you're just passionate about something and maybe you think it's the way to no no that's so not normal and yeah, I didn't know that was something in frisking because we talk about these issues maybe in surfing. Yeah. Where like women are more like naked and the body, the woman body is more like put in front of the cameras. But in skiing, I didn't know like this could happen or like it's yeah, shocking. Like yeah. The women's issues used to be it's so shocking. I remember I hit this down flat down rail, mm-hmm. and I remember the editor of the magazine was like, "Oh, if you get this, you'll be on the cover," and I was like, "Whoa." That's sick. Like, motivated me, right? Mm -hmm. And I got it. I got it really clean. It was one of my favorite photos that I've ever had. And it ended up in the inside of the magazine and not on the cover. And I I don't remember what was on the cover, but there was always a lifestyle photo shoot that, like, flaunted women in not an athletic, not, like, celebrating the athletic side of it. Um, Yeah, it was just unfortunate. Oh, yeah, for sure. And do you think it has changed over the years, this kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I haven't been asked to pose naked in a long time. (laughs) Which I'm not... Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And and for me, like, I'm not against that. If the woman feels like they have the choice and they want to do that, I'm not against it. I was definitely scarred from it and, like, Mm. wouldn't ever do it, I don't think. Unless... I I think the one that is actually really fascinating is the ESPN body issue. Mm. Have you seen that ever? Yeah. Because it's like a celebration of athleticism. Mm. Yeah. But it's athleticism, not just like a yes. specific type of body and totally. yeah, just how your body is when you do this kind of sport and stuff. Yeah, it's and fascinating, yeah, 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 actually. True, definitely. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. But I guess it's hard also to differ- make the difference between like an opportunity for your career. I mean, Frisking magazine is a skiing magazine, so you want to be featuring this. And if they ask you to pose naked, like, what do you do as a skier? It's so hard to to differentiate when you're, especially when you're young. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, this just shouldn't ask for this, in my opinion. And that's yeah. No, <laughs> me either. Should, yeah. So put yourself time. in the position of saying no to something that mm-hmm. can be a big opportunity, which is something hard to say when you're young youngster coming up you don't want to say no to opportunities but mm-hmm. if you have to do these things to be featured that's so not normal yeah yeah so luckily this is not this has changed anymore yeah, yeah wow. totally it's <laughs> crazy <laughs> so thankful mm-hmm. for that yeah but i think yeah it's it just like warms my heart to see all y'all coming up and having the space and the and the credibility and the opportunity and and we're still working on it for sure maybe some other woman would say different huh? maybe i'm just good yeah. at forgetting the bad thing yeah <laughs> totally like yeah. other women that are mm-hmm. coming up right now they they're like what do you mean by that they would uh, i mean I have this conversation with one of my close snowboarder friends, Marion Hattie, and she, she's she been getting some issues with like finding her place in the snowboard world as a woman. So 
yeah, just to highlight that this is just my experience, yeah. but other women at this time, like right now, might have other experiences as well. So totally. I'm not saying everything is perfect, neither. Well, you have a tendency to look on the bright side, too. And <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, <laughs> I just even. didn't even listen to that mm. stuff. Yeah. But yeah, so that's not everything is perfect for sure, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Do you have anything else you want to add? Mm, thank you so much for yeah. inviting me. Yeah, that was a great, great talk, <laughs> as always with you. <laughs> I love it. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing. And it's a pleasure and an honor to thank be you. on the same team with you. And every time I see you, I just get so excited. So thank you so same much. Same for me. Thank you so much.